Welcome to the Red Door Church Sermon Podcast. Red Door Church is a church seeking to transform the city of Pretoria by the power of the gospel. We are distinctly mission-minded, community-cultivating, and city-loving. Please enjoy this week's sermon, and don't forget to follow and continue the conversation by sharing with those around you. Father God, this morning, we want to thank you that we can gather, even though it is digitally, even though we are the church scattered, we are united by our spirit. And so this morning we think on and we think of all the people that are sick, even some people that are experiencing COVID at this time. We're thinking about our country. We're thinking about Hateng as we are entering the fourth wave. And so many different anxieties that are just flaming up again as we think about the impact that this will have on us economically. We think about the impact that this will have on us socially as we are distancing once again we're even fearful for the vulnerable in our midst we're fearful even for our family as we would want to spend time with them this holiday not knowing whether or not that would actually put them in danger and so father even as we're reeling from kind of just uh, our world being put upside down again we want to come to you this morning We want to sit at the foot of the cross and we want to behold you and see the hope that we have in Jesus Christ. Father, we do pray that the familiar story of the birth of Christ would not take away the awe that we should feel as we behold the incarnation of God into man. I pray that as we enter into this Advent series, a time of expectancy a time of looking forward to the Savior coming, that that same expectancy would almost be brewed in our hearts as we expect you, Jesus, to come again in the second coming. As we reflect on what you've done in the past, may we have hope for the present and for the future. We pray this not just for our community and a community at Red Door, but we pray this for the church, the global church, and for all people. We pray that this message of hope would maybe shine brighter this year than it did other years when people are truly looking for something to hold on to, when people are feeling hopelessness and anxiety. We pray that Christians, not immune from these anxieties, but would be characterized as different people, people characterized by hope. We know that we can't do this for ourselves. We can't even have the faith to believe this fully, but this is done through a miraculous work of your spirit. And we pray that you would do it this morning and this season in our hearts and in our community for your glory and our benefit. Amen. Megan, over to you to read this morning's text for us, please. Morning, everyone. Um, So as Ren said, Uh, This morning's reading is from Matthew 1, verse 1 to 25, and it reads as follows. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Amminadab, and Amminadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon, 
and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, and Solomon the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam the father of Abijah, and Abijah the father of Asaph, and Asaph the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat the father of Joram, and Joram the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah the father of Jotham, and Jotham the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh the father of Amos, and Amos the father of Josiah, and Josiah the father of Jehoniah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jehoniah was the father of Shiltiel, and Shiltiel the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Abiod, and Abiod the father of Elikim, and Elikim the father of Azor, and Azor the father of Zadok. And Okay, I think we've 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 lost Megan there uh, <laughs> at the end there. So um, maybe where are we right now? Um, I'll continue reading for us from verse seventeen and says, "So all the generations from Abraham to David were fourteen generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, fourteen generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, fourteen generations." Now, the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother, Mary, had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband, Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from his sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son. And he called his name Jesus. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Got to love Zoom and just the intricacies of how these things work out. Um, 
Christmas is normally a time that we spend with family and normally during family times, there's always drama. I don't know about you guys and your family gatherings, but there's always some or other scandal or some or other drama that it was happening or has been happening throughout the year. Now, for the most part, people try and actually avoid scandals, or at least that other people would find out about the drama in their family or about the scandals that their fa family are facing. And nowhere is this more truer or more true than in the family of the royal British family. They have a person full-time employed to help navigate the circumstances in the royal family. And this person is called the personal secretary to the king or queen. Now, this is a full-time job because, believe it or not, there are a lot of scandals happening in the royal family. I don't know if any of you have ever watched uh, the series The Crown on Netflix, but it's drama from day one. Uh, those people aren't sorted out, I can tell you that. But why is it important for this family or for the British royal family to have someone help them navigate all these scandals? Well, it's obviously because of their reputation, because of their stature. They want to try and avoid any negative publicity at all costs. Most of all, they are afraid of what scandals might say about them and their family. They're afraid it will communicate that they're just like everyone else. It's almost like our Facebook or Instagram profiles. We only put up what is the best of ourselves. We want to portray a particular picture to the world around us and to the people around us about who we want them to think we are. I'm yet to see the person uh, post a picture on Instagram of how they failed their driver's license for the seventh time in a row. Hashtag failing forward. Um, it's interesting, even though we always try to put our best foot forward, um, this is not so with the Bible. Everything that God put in the Bible, he put in there to teach us and to reveal to us something about himself or how the people of God are to relate with God. But the moment you start reading the Bible, you see that it's full of scandals. It's full of broken people going through life, trying to get to God, but always failing. Even when we read about the birth of Jesus, the Savior, it is full of scandals. Jesus can almost be called the scandalous Savior. But there's a difference between the scandals that Jesus is experiencing and our own. These scandals that characterize the birth and life of Jesus is actually very good news for us today, as we'll see in a moment. And this brings us to the gospel according to Matthew. Now, just a little bit of context before we dive into the text. Matthew was writing to a Jewish audience, and um, he was trying to convince this Jewish audience that Jesus was, in fact, the Christ. And so the way that he was convincing them is constantly referring back to the Old Pro uh, Testament, back to the prophecies made about Jesus to prove that Jesus is the promised Messiah. And this is also how he starts his gospel, where he specifically shows the legitimacy of Jesus' claim to the throne. And so the way that he does this in today's text is by showing the fulfillment of two Old Testament prophecies. Uh, the one is in 2 Samuel 7 to show that Jesus is the rightful 
heir to the throne. And the other is Isaiah 7 to show that Jesus is, in fact, the promised one from God. And these two prophecies work together to make the single point that Jesus is the savior that the world has been expecting. However, the twist in the tale comes in the way that these prophecies are fulfilled. Even though Jesus is the expected Messiah, from what and whom he is to save is totally unexpected. And so we're going to uncover two scandals today in Jesus' birth to show these two points. The first is to show who Jesus came to save, and the second, from what did Jesus come to save them. And so let's dive into the first part. The first part deals with Christ's lineage to show that he is, in fact, a descendant from David. And this is a pretty big deal to show that you are a descendant from David because the prophecy made to David by Nathan in 2 Samuel 7 is as follows. I think we're going to see it on the screen in a moment. It says in 2 Samuel 7, verse 10 to 16, that moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of men, with the sons of men, but my steadfast love will not depart from him. As I took it from Saul, whom I put up away before you, and your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. And so this is what God promised David, that one day out of David's offspring, there will arise a king whose kingdom will be established forever. Meaning that they, the nation of Israel will no longer be oppressed and enslaved by the enemy. They will be a free nation. This is an incredible promise. And so for centuries, they've been awaiting for this specific king that will come and deliver them. And this is why the gospel, according to Matthew, starts with this genealogy, Jesus's family tree, to show that Jesus wasn't just some guy making a claim to the throne. No, he's got the paperwork to back it up. He is, in fact, the promised king. Now, back in the day, uh, genealogies were quite common to illustrate a variety of things, whether you were entitled to some things or not. Um, people would typically give a genealogy to prove something. And therefore, in genealogies, it wasn't uncommon to include some stuff and to exclude some stuff in your genealogy. You would only include the stuff and the names of the people in your family tree that would help you make your specific point. But it wasn't uncommon to also omit certain names out of your genealogy, especially if there were names in your genealogy that were embarrassing. If you had one very sketchy grandfather, you might have just left out his name in the genealogy to make sure that that is kept under wraps. And so all of this to say is that not only did Matthew give Jesus' genealogy to prove a particular point, that is, that Jesus is the king, but he also included and excluded certain names from the list to show what type of king 
Jesus would be. Now, I know, um, even as we read the passage, that this is typically one of those times where you would read the Bible, but you would just skip through all the names. Uh, But upon closer inspection, it does reveal something remarkable if we see who is included in the list and who is excluded. Why did Matthew keep certain names in Jesus' genealogy? Well, here's the first thing that we notice, is that he included five women in Jesus' family tree. Now, fam, culturally speaking, back in the day, this was unheard of. Never would you include women in the family tree. And not only did he include women in the family tree, but some of those ladies were of, let's say, questionable character. Some of them were prostitutes. Some of them um, did some things that you probably wouldn't discuss at the family dinner. And it's not just because of the woman. Uh, In that list, we also included Gentiles. That means that non-Jews were part of Jesus's family tree. This is absolutely scandalous. This is the type of thing that every family would swear to secrecy, that it would never see the light of day. And here, Matthew makes it public. Matthew writes it down so that all of us can see exactly who is part of Jesus's family tree. And the question is why? Why this scandalous revelation about the lineage, the history of Jesus? Why this chosen genealogy? And it is to make one very important point. Yes, Jesus is the rightful heir to the throne. Yes, Jesus is to be king, but he is to be king for whom? The point of this genealogy is to show that from the beginning, the plan was that Jesus was to be king over all. Not just the Jews, not just the small nation of Israel, but everyone. Jesus was going to be king over those especially who didn't deserve it, over the misfits, over the outcasts. He is the scandalous savior for the scandalous people. And so what is this? mean for us today as we contemplate the incarnation of God, the birth and reign of a king, the king for all people. Well, if this is true that Jesus is king for all, that he is not just king, but that he is savior for all people, first and foremost, what we should do business with this morning is recognize the fact that he came to save you as well. No matter who you are, no matter where you're from, no matter the scandals in your life, how well you've been able to keep up appearances or whether you failed spectacularly, no matter your pedigree, your lineage, whether you grew up in the suburbs, the township or the farm, no matter whether you have known Jesus since childhood or whether you've lived a wildlife and only heard about him recently, no matter your social or financial position, whether you have a lot of investments or you don't even know what you're going to eat for dinner tonight, no matter your family situation, whether you grew up with many family members or you don't even know who your parents are, none of these things bring us closer or further away from Jesus. The only thing that matters is that Jesus drew close 
to us. He was born so that he could be the savior of all people. Now, Christmas is a special time to reflect upon this fact. This is especially important if you've already been a Christian for quite some time. The danger is that you become so familiar with the story of Jesus' incarnation, with the birth of Christ, with Christmas, that we don't reflect upon what this means for us and we lose out. The fruit of this, if we're not constantly reminded of this fact, is that we try and prove ourselves to God that we are worth saving, that we are worth being kept in the family. We try and be better be people. We are more concerned about what we do. We are more concerned about what other people think of us, of our reputation, than we do about our relationship with Christ. It becomes transactional. It becomes keeping up appearances. And all of this stems from the fact that we don't really believe or that we've forgotten that Jesus is, in fact, our Savior and the Savior of all people, not because of who we are or what we can bring to the table, but because of who he is. He is the king over all. He is the Savior of all people, even me. This is who Jesus came to say. And the second part of this scandalous revelation, and the second part of the story is to say, what did Jesus come to save us from? And the second half of this morning's text, the first half was the genealogy, and the second half is the retelling of Jesus' birth. And again, in any king's story or any hero story, we would say that the origin story, meaning the background, the context that formed them, is extremely important. But this story, like the genealogy, is not what you would expect. In fact, it is full of controversy and scandal. Um, Joseph was betrothed to Mary. And that means that they were promised with one to one another. The families have already gone into negotiations. Uh, they've already been, the papers have been signed. Um, culturally, if they wanted to separate from one another, they would have needed to get a legal divorce. That's how serious it was at this stage. Yet, they weren't married yet. They definitely weren't considered to be in a marriage relationship. They were simply betrothed to one another. And it's at this stage that Joseph finds out that Mary is pregnant. Now, the text says that Joseph, being a just man, wanted to secretly divorce Mary. And here's why. If Mary is pregnant and they're not married yet, it obviously means that Mary was an adulterer. And according to the Old Testament laws, that the penalty of that is death by stoning. And so Joseph, wanting to spare Mary that, thought that he was going to divorce her secretly. Yet, we see that an angel appeared to Joseph in his dream, telling him and encouraging him not to divorce Mary, because the child conceived in Mary is by the Holy Spirit. And this is not obviously a miraculous thing, but it's not the ideal situation for Mary or Joseph. Can, can you imagine the scrutiny? that they must have been under from their family and from their culture. This definitely wasn't the easy way for them to try and explain what was happening, how Mary was pregnant, 
yet they weren't married yet. And so we've got to ask the question, why was it necessary that Jesus had to be born this way? Why the reason for this scandal? Why put Mary and Joseph through all of this? Well, part of this is to fulfill the prophecy that was prophesied in Isaiah 7, verse 14. The Lord said, therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Jesus' virgin birth is the sign from God that he is Emmanuel. And Emmanuel means God with us. But it's much more than just a sign. It is an indication what we need saving from. I think most of us, if we were to describe what we need help from or what we need help with, we would describe our external circumstances. Save us from the weak economy. Save us from COVID. Yes, Lord. Save us from the evil in the world. Save me from my academics, from the test. Save me from my boss. Save me from my own failings. And all of these are legitimate things that we do need saving from and that we do need help with and things that we actually do need to pray to God for. However, they are not enemy number one. This is not the biggest thing that we need saving from. The angel announced to Joseph that we need saving from. In verse 21, he said, she will bear a son. And you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. The reason why Jesus was born in this scandalous manner was so that he could save us from our sins. When Adam and Eve sinned, not only were they removed from God's presence, not only were they sinful, but they were cursed by God and the curse of sin dwelled in their flesh. And from generation to generation, this curse was passed on and along with the curse, it carried with the penalty of God's judgment. A righteous God was to judge his people for being sinful. And so that's why no king, no matter how good or how godly they were, could save Israel from their sins because they couldn't even save themselves. No one could live the perfect, righteous life. And it's into this frame that we see Jesus Christ coming. His virgin birth isn't just incidental to the nativity story. It is central to our salvation. Jesus is incarnated so that he can represent us, so that he can rule and live the life we never could. But because he is conceived through the Holy Spirit, it means that he doesn't carry the curse of Adam. Romans 5 describes it in this way. It says, for if because of one man's trespass, that is Adam, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. That's why Jesus is called the second Adam, through whom new life comes. Death came through the first Adam, life and grace through the second Adam, 
Jesus Christ. Christmas time is the time of giving gifts, and we are reminded of the greatest gift of all that Jesus gave himself for us. And yes, that means the forgiveness of our sins. But family, it's so much more than just that. Oftentimes, I think we we stop there in the story when we share Jesus and when we talk about the gospel of Jesus Christ and when he came, what he came to do. Yes, he came and he offered up himself so that we can be forgiven and that we can have forgiveness for our sins. But we miss the other half of what is achieved through his incarnation, life, death, and resurrection. Sin not only caused the curse, the damnation, the righteous judgment from a just God, but it also caused separation. Consequently, Jesus' birth is the start of the reunification between God and man. It is the bringing back together. That is why Jesus is called Emmanuel, God with us. Not only because Jesus, who was God himself, was physically walking amongst mankind, but because of the forgiveness of sins, God now dwells in all of us who are his children. And if God is among us, he is also for us. Christmas is a time when we reflect upon the forgiveness of our sins, but also a time when we tell one another and when we proclaim to the world, Emmanuel, God is with us, dwelling in and through his church by his Holy Spirit. No longer do we have to fear the judgment of a holy God, or even the anxieties of this world, because the God of the universe dwells in me. Never will I be abandoned. Never will I be deserted. Never will I have to taste the bitter separation from God again, because Jesus tasted that on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When we share the truth of Jesus with the world around us, we want them to understand their need for a savior. We want them to understand that they need saving from their sins. But we also want to testify to the wonderful news of being united with a great God. Even the Jews didn't recognize who Jesus was. They didn't recognize him as the promised king because they thought their greatest need was their political deliverance. They thought their external circumstances was their biggest problem. And yet all of us know deep down in our hearts that our biggest problems are ourselves. And they couldn't accept that. That's why they rejected him, crucified him. Jesus is the savior we don't always want, but he is the savior we always need. Especially in a time like this, when COVID an upside-down world seems to isolate and separate people. Even the church is scattered, and things might seem dark and gloomy. Yet for the Christian, hope remains because because of the incarnation of Jesus, we are never separated from God. And family, it's because of this that I want to read for us in, in closing Romans 8 from verse 31. 
It's not on the screen, but let me read for us. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not separate his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, he was raised. Who is at the right hand of God. Who indeed is interceding for us all. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. We, we praise God for a scandalous Savior to save us from our scandalous selves. Let's pray. Father God, we praise your name, not only because you are God, and not only because of the incarnation of Jesus, Jesus Christ, but specifically the way that he came into this world. Jesus, that you are a king, and a savior, but a savior for all. And not only that, but you came to save us from ourselves and from our own sinfulness and thereby giving yourself to us. Emmanuel, God with us. We pray and we ask that this truth will shine so bright in our lives. Often, Lord, we feel that it is our job to convict the world of sin and yet we know that that is the job of the Holy Spirit. Even as we're going to spend so much time with friends and family over the holiday season, Father, we pray that the greatest testimony would be not to tell people that Jesus has come, but to live experientially that God is with us now. That we are people with hope amidst the broken world, amidst experiencing need. We know that we are safe. And safeguarded in you. Therefore, you said, never will you leave us nor forsake us. For that we love you and we praise you. Amen.